Welcome to the At the Castle Bible Teaching Podcast. Our goal is to dive deep into the Word of God and uncover its timeless truths and teachings. At the Castle, we believe that the Bible is the inspired and infallible Word of God, and we seek to understand and apply it to our lives. During ATC Winter Weekend 2022 we were joined by Andrew Sack, who helped us to explore the Gospel of Mark. For more information about At the Castle, please check out our website, www.atthecastle.org.uk or find us via our social media. We hope that through this podcast, you'll grow in your knowledge and love of God's Word and be equipped to live out your faith more fully. My name is Andrew. It's great to see out the window because last night I arrived and it was dark and didn't really realise I was in a castle, so it's kind of cool to wake up this morning and see all of you here. Um, what we're going to do, and if you were here last night, you'll know this. We're, I'm trying to do a mixture of teaching Mark's gospel and teaching you how to teach Mark's gospel, at least to how to understand a Bible passage more. And I hope that, therefore, some of what I do this weekend will be transferable to other Bible passages, to your own Bible study, um, some of the kind of principles I would follow, trying to understand it. So it's going to be like this is half a sermon and half... I'm letting you into my study and you work with me at it and then I'll preach it sort of as we go on. So I'll, I'm going to do what I did last night, but if you're new to it, you're thinking, what is he doing? So I'm doing that. And what, one of the principles last night was that really the best way to get to know a passage of the Bible is just to read it more than once. And it's quite a long reading today and I'm not going to read it again, but I would really like to. And um, I feel, you know, the disadvantage we've heard just once through quite a lot of ideas and we've our brains have only just begun to engage with them so um please try and build this into your bible study so it'd be great if there's probably not enough time in the coffee break to read the next passage but you know to read ahead for next sunday's sermon would be really good to read ahead for this week's small group whatever you're going to do so that we're just familiar with it and then last night i gave you a test to see how well you know mark's gospel and you enjoyed it so much that I thought, let's do a test every session. Why not? So uh, t- this morning, I thought we would do, can you name in pairs the four different ways that Jesus heals people in Mark's gospel? So maximum of four points. But then you get an extra point for each if you can say which personal situation Jesus used each healing method in. We're not looking for exorcisms, just for healings. I think there's four kinds. There's not an official classification of how of healings, but I reckon there's four. So see if you can work out different ways Jesus heals people. And for a bonus point, who does he heal with each method? You're not allowed to really look in your Bible because that's cheating. You have to do it from memory. Okay, let's stop there. That's enough time to name for healing methods. Harsh time pressure, I know. So anyone want to give me one? I haven't got an official list. I've just got to rely on whether I can think of Mark's gospel well enough. Yeah, what's the method? Not who does he heal, but the... Just speech. Yeah, very good. So all Jesus says is, take your bed and go. So, and he does. So, healing paralysis just by speaking. Okay, you get two points for that because you've got the right healing method and the right person. Yeah. 
<laughs> Very good. I thought that was the one that people wouldn't get. Touching of exterior clothing. Yeah, he does, he does that. The woman with the hemorrhage touches his garment and is made well. Yeah. And then there are some more people who get healed the same way at the end of chapter 6, I think. And they sometimes, some of them touch his garment and get made well. So that happens twice. Yep. Good. Um, so speaking, having your garment touched, saliva, that is correct. That is a method. But for the extra point, you have to tell me the two people who get healed with saliva. Blind man, Jesus uses saliva to open his eyes. And there's one other person. You've got one and a half points so far. Half a point, I don't know. Deaf man is also the same way. So it's also with saliva. Spat, but he touched his ears and said, Epthatha which means be opened. Um, great. Uh, there's one other healing method. Just touch. Just touch, where we saw... The leper. I don't think he touches his mother-in-law. He doesn't touch the man with the hand, but he definitely touches the leper, which is such a shocking thing to do. Like, whoa... That's the one thing that you mustn't do with a leper, is to touch them, and it's exactly the thing. Presumably, Jesus could have done it the other way, right? He could have done it with his clothes, or he could have done it with his words. But Jesus, deliberately to cause a stir, does it the one way you're really, really not supposed to do it, which is to touch him. Okay, great. That was, that was, there's no particular reason for that, apart from we're going to keep having tests, because, you know, it's fun to just to test how well you know Mark's gospel. Great. Um, well, I want to start this session today by saying... I hope you're not looking forward to going to heaven. And I say that, I, didn't, I thought I wouldn't say that last night because it's the first time you heard me and I might be bundled into a car and dragged from the castle because you think, what? I hope you're not looking forward to going to heaven. As in, ultimately. I mean, he- heaven's okay as a temporary destination, but it isn't where the Christian's going ultimately. You do you know that? And we, we often talk about it as a, as a shorthand. Like what I really hope, my Christian hope is to die and go to heaven. It isn't, that isn't the Christian hope. Um, the Christian hope is a, a new heavens and a new earth. A renewed creation, a fixed world. That's what we're really looking forward to. I can't wait until I can be in Castle Wellen and it can be just as beautiful as this, but also have no death. Yeah, the things that are really good about being down here, but without the stuff that breaks it and stuffs it up. You know, without Jesus being far away and without diseases and without broken promises and without lies and without evil. That's what I'm looking forward to. Now, heaven in the Bible, I mean, it's, it's the up there place. Jesus ascends into heaven, um, the heavens and the earth, the, the skies, you know, where the stars are, so they're up in the heavens and then the earth down here where we are. And heaven is where... Jesus went and where we go temporarily. So Jesus um, died and, and then resurrected and then ascended, but he's going to descend. So the beginning of Acts, that this Jesus whom you saw go into heaven will return in the same way that you saw him go. So Jesus is in heaven for a while, 2,000 years and counting, 
but will be back on the earth. And that's true actually of everything in the Christian hope. So if you die um, before the second coming, then we'll also go up into heaven temporarily until we're ready to come back. And it's actually all over the Bible, this idea. So things start in heaven and then come to earth later. We're on a bit of a time lag down here. So, for example, in Revelation, where does the, what happens to the new Jerusalem, the great city, the future city? Well, it comes down out of heaven from God. It's been prepared up there temporarily, and then it's ready to come down to earth. Or um, Colossians chapter 3, since you've been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at, in the heavenly places. So set your mind up there. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, when he comes down, you also will appear with him in glory. You see, so the, the ultimate hope is being down here, but with the world fixed. And in the short term, like before the world is ready to be fixed, before the, the final judgment day, if you die earlier than that, then you get to go to be in heaven in the short term. Um, Maybe you know that already, but it's quite a shift for me and it, it makes quite a big difference for me because when I first became a Christian, I was quite excited about Jesus. I really loved him and what he'd done for me. And I wasn't very excited about heaven, if I'm honest. And because that's because I got most of my ideas um, about heaven from Hollywood, where heaven is an overexposed photograph. I mean, it must have been easy to film because they just changed the exposure settings on the camera. And everything is a different shade of white. And I thought, it's a shame, because I quite like colours. <laughs> and or um, the only companions were fat babies with wings. I don't know why they decided that cherubim would be fat, but you know that was just the Italian Renaissance art tradition. And the only musical instrument that was allowed was the harp, which, sorry to any harpist, is not my favourite instrument. You know, this sort of stylized, slightly floaty, not quite real existence. And I love Jesus, and the thought of being with Jesus was great, but the idea of that didn't appeal hugely. Because I kind of like, you know, solid things. Down here, real things, like this. I mean, you could, it's good that they put the room this way around, isn't it? Otherwise, you would be very distracted for the entire session. I am quite distracted. I can see an amazing view out that window. I like that view more than I like clouds. Clouds are nice, but only clouds, you know. So, and of course, I was very, very excited. It was one of those sermons that I still remember that was completely life-changing. The first time I heard a, a sermon about the Christian hope that explained we're looking forward to a new creation. The world made new, the world fixed, like this, but without the pain and the death and the, and the evil. Then I got really excited about it. I thought, that, that's awesome. I think actually there's no human being, if they understand that vision, wouldn't find it an exciting one. Um, but how do we know it's not wishful thinking? Like, how do we know it's actually, it's actually real? And that's the introduction for today's passage. We'll come back to that in a moment. So um, what I want us to do is, um, each session, I'm going to do a little bit of Bible study method and then we're mainly going to preach the passage. So last night we did how all the bits of the passage fit together and you need to read it a lot of times. That was the main lesson. Um, today I want us to think about the structure of the passage, how it's arranged. You might think that's quite a long reading. 
chapter 116 all the way to 214. Because um, often in church, I, mean, I don't know how much you do this in one go, I would probably do something like the calling of the first disciples, chapter 116 to 20. That's enough really, isn't it, for a sermon? There's, there's plenty there. But today we're doing a whole chapter and a half, which is a lot. And I'm also stopping in a really strange work place because I'm stopping halfway through a paragraph. So I'm stopping at chapter 2, verse 14, when he says to Levi, follow me. And I'm missing out the dinner party that they then have with Levi in his house. Like, why, why am I stopping there? Well, um, I think when it comes to structure in the Bible, it's a little bit like eating chocolate. Because when you eat chocolate, the chocolate manufacturer decides what the portions are supposed to be. So if it's a Toblerone, it's quite a big portion. But it's very, very clear where, you, where you're meant to snap it. If it's a galaxy, it's kind of hard to tell because the grooves aren't very deep. Right? So with the Bible, sometimes it's more Toblerone-like and sometimes it's more galaxy-like. But you're trying to find out not how many verses do I want to tackle in one go, but how many verses does Mark want me to tackle in one go? Where's he put the groove where he wants me to snap it? How much does he expect me to bite off? And I, I'm suggesting that the, the unit, the, the section, is 116 all the way through to 214. How do I know that? Um, why don't you just have a look at the beginning and the end of my section? So my sec in case you can't read on the screen because it's too small, my section is 116 to 214. Just have a look at the beginning of the end and see why um, I think it's a pair. Just turn to your neighbour. It would be very easy, but just quickly turn to your neighbour and discuss. If you think you found the obvious thing, look for the less obvious thing, because there's always a bit more to find. <laughs> okay, let's feedback. So I think this is a section because it starts and ends the same, like a pair of bookends. <coughs> like Mark sort of bracket it together. How? Anyone? Not a trick question, so I'm not trying to catch you out. Follow him, yeah. So he says, follow me at the beginning, and he says at the end, follow me. So the same invitation comes at the beginning and the end. Good? And not only does Jesus say, follow me, but they do. So Jesus says, follow me, and Levi follows him at the end, and at the beginning, he said to him, follow me, and they... Followed him. Okay, so it starts and ends kind of this, with the same instruction, same invitation, the same response. Um, anyone want to say any more that matches? That, that's true. Any more than that? So, same place, interestingly. So it's by the sea, alongside the Sea of Galilee at the beginning, and then again beside the sea. Nothing else in between is by the sea, but this is, it rhymes nicely, beside the sea, follow me, 
And why does Jesus choose the lakeside as the place of invitations? I don't know, but he does it both times. And it means that they pair off quite the same. Um, invitations to James and John at the beginning, invitation to Levi at the end, both by the sea, both follow me, they both follow him. Okay, well, that, that looks like not only is a similar thing happening, but Mark is narrating it in a very similar way so that we can't miss the parallel and the connection. So I want to say that's, that looks like a section to me. So um, why don't I just enclose that? Follow. Follow. Anyone got anything else for us? Right, yeah, they leave, so they don't just follow, they leave things and follow him. Um, he rose and followed him. He, they left their nets. In fact, they left their dad. Zebedee's <laughs> like, where are you going, sons? And off they go after Jesus. Yeah. And what about, if that's the outer bookends, what about going in one level? Did anyone look in one level? Go in one level. Where, where are they? So we said they're by the sea at the beginning and they're by the sea at the end. Where are they just after being by the sea? They're in Capernaum. Um, where are they just before being by the sea again? They're in, they return to Capernaum. Is that clear on that? Yeah, you can see just about. I should get a darker colour. Hang on. Let's make it a dark blue. They were in Capernaum, and then they returned to Capernaum. So geographically, this is kind of symmetrical. They're by the sea, then they're in Capernaum, then they're other places, then they're in Capernaum, then they're by the sea. Well, the same thing happened by the sea both times. I wonder if the same thing happens in Capernaum both times. That's an interesting thought. Why don't you turn to your neighbour and see, can you find the same thing that happens in Capernaum? Or at least uh, a connection between the slightly different things that have something in common. Okay, um, what happens at Capernaum both times? Teaching, yeah. Um, I think that's, that's true, it's a thematic link. Um, Mark doesn't use the same word for it, so he, he says he's teaching in the synagogue and he's speaking the word in Capernaum. And I guess that's a, probably a similar kind of thing, but if Mark had wanted to make it a pair, he could have made it the same, he could have said it exactly the same way. So I kind of think, yeah, thematically it's one, but Mark hasn't gone out of his way to draw that parallel. Different word, teaching, speaking. Um, there is some kind of, not really a healing at the beginning, actually. It's an exorcism, which Mark thinks is a different thing to a healing. But certainly some kind of miracle in Capernaum. Jesus' authority, now that is where Mark does use the same word. So where do you find authority? What is this? A new teaching with authority, he says down here. A new teaching with authority. But also, verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching. He taught them as one who had 
authority. That's quite a big deal. He's underlining Jesus' teaching has authority, not just his speaking, but he's speaking authoritatively. And at Capernaum, the second time, that's also the issue. Where? Verse 10, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. It might be you missed that because, you know, it's just, it looks like a slightly different context to start with. But both times he's talking about the authority that he has. And actually, I'm going to, if you kept working on it, you might, you might get a bit further. I'm going to, here we are, and it's an authority point. An authority point in Capernaum. But here's the thing, um, it starts off both... Um, in both cases, Jesus is speaking, but his authority of his words are evident from his actions in both cases. So um, in, in the first one, they went to the synagogue and they were astonished at his teaching. He taught with authority. And then Mark shows you how they know that because Jesus then meets a man with a demon, an unclean spirit speaks to the demon, the demon shrieks, convulses the man and comes out. And then they all say, what do you expect them to say? Wow, look at how good his exorcisms are. No, they say, wow, look at how authoritative his teaching is. See, that's quite surprising, isn't it? So he teaches, then he does an exorcism and then they go, wow, his teaching really has clout, has weight. Because the point is, it's not just Jesus giving information, it's Jesus giving orders. Jesus teaching, demons have to do what he says when he teaches. It's not just a lecture, um, it's words that have power to do something. But they're not amazed at the exorcism, they're amazed at the teaching. Now that you've seen what kind of effect it can have. Yeah, people see that? So the the exorcism demonstrates the authority of the words. And of course, that's exactly what happens in the very much, I mean, the very, very famous passage, isn't it? I think people often use this evangelistically. We probably all know, absolutely back to front, the story of the paralytic. But do you notice it's the same point? That Jesus says something, your sins are forgiven. And they're questioning, you know, is that blasphemous? Does he, has he really done that? And then Jesus demonstrates it by an amazing healing. Um, and the healing demonstrates the authority of his words. So Jesus' words are getting backed up by the effects of his words. He says stuff, stuff happens. He says stuff, evil spirits are driven out. He says stuff, paralyzed people start walking. And they go, wow, when he says stuff, that's authoritative, that is. Okay? So we've got this structure um, at Capernaum, sorry, at, at, by the sea, follow me, in Capernaum, authority. In Capernaum, authority, by the sea, follow me. It doesn't look accidental, does it? It's been arranged really quite carefully um, by Mark. He wants us to get this point. Well, what are we going to do with this? How does this work? Well, I suggest that this kind of bracket structure Partly it's meant to keep it all together, so we know we're meant to do this really long section. This is the chocolate bar groove, and we break it here. But it's also trying to tell you, I think, that the follow me thing, 
is connected to Brookends sandwiches, the authority thing. And I think it works like this. Um, hey, you, um, with your good job in your family fishing business, give up your fishing business and come and work for me as fishers of men. What? You've got to be mad. Like, this is our dad, Zebedee. He's been running the business for years. He got it from his grandfather, and uh, we're continuing it. All our skills are in fishing. Why would we do that? Um, here's a man, Levi, he's um, in his tax collecting business, a bit unpopular, but you know, it pays well, especially because no one really notices if you just add a zero occasionally. Um, and uh, Jesus comes along and says, hey, um, you, uh, why don't you give up your life of crime and come and follow me? <laughs> why would I do that? Like, who in their right mind would follow Jesus if the price tag is your entire life, Right? Give up your entire life and follow me. Because that's, that's what happens. As someone pointed out, they, it's not just they add Jesus as a hobby onto their existing lifestyle. They basically abandon everything, their father, their business, their income, and follow him. Now, it's hard for us to understand this because in the West, you know, well, certainly in Northern Ireland, less now in England, I guess, but Christian faith has become so normalized that it easily fits alongside other stuff. Like, no one really minds if, as well as being an engineer, you're, you know, you go to church. A lot of people in Northern Ireland go to church. It's kind of fine. In England, people are less fine with it, and maybe here in 20 years' time, they'll be less fine with it because the culture's getting a bit more um, secular. But it's kind of, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll add Christian to the rest of my life. That's fine. But um, think of other parts of the world, like I Iran. I've got three, um, well, they're, they're actually preferred to be called Persian because they really want to distance themselves from the whole Islamic government of their country. But three Iranian Persian asylum seekers recently joined our church. And um, to become a Christian was to lose your family, your business, and to be in extreme danger. And they had to leave and... I think very differently now when I hear about you know people in little boats coming across the channel and we're saying, oh, what a pest, if only we could get them away. Now that I know three people who came on little boats and because they wanted to follow Jesus and because it means lose everything. He would do that. Like It's a very different kind of evangelistic preaching, isn't it? It's not, would you like to follow Jesus and add him to your life or would you like to follow Jesus instead of your life? Why would you? Oh, well, you would if you saw the authority that his words have. See, that, that's the point of this structure, this sandwich, that what happens by the sea only makes sense because of what happens in Capernaum. And, if you, and it's not just words, words, because anyone can, you know, obviously people do rouse great crowds with persuasive words. I mean, that's what Hitler did, right? He could get massive rallies of young people very very excited um, and he could get them to do anything he wanted including going into a crazy war um, you can do a lot with words but in Jesus case it's not just words it's words that you can witness being powerful they get to see it 
Now, what is the teaching? We're not actually told in this chapter what his teaching is, apart from that it's got authority. But I think we are told just in the previous two verses. So just back to verse... Um, 14, 15, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus going around saying, I am the king, he doesn't quite say that because it takes Peter until halfway through the gospel to figure that out, but Jesus implies that by saying, here is the kingdom, here is the rule of God. You've got to repent. You've got to turn from your tax-collecting illegal business. You've got to turn from your adultery. You've got to turn from your, your current ways and believe in this good news. God's kingdom's here. And then something about what he does proves it. Okay, so have you got the logic so far? How the whole thing's working together? It's this response to follow because of this authority. So I'm going to put some arrows in. This authority makes it make sense. It explains why they would follow. This authority makes it make sense or explains why they would then follow. So, um, but it's actually a bit more than this. It's not just Jesus says something and then does an impossible thing to prove it. Because you could say, I am the king, the kingdom's here. I'll prove it. I'll levitate a fox for 35 seconds. And then Jesus levitates a fox. I mean, normally people can't levitate foxes, right? So that would be quite a good demonstration of miraculous power. Jesus doesn't do that. Um, he doesn't do what people, for some reason, my non-Christian friends always want him to do, write messages in clouds. Okay. If God's here, let him write a message in the clouds. It's like God could do that, but he's not going to. Um, but he doesn't do that. What is it about the particular things that Jesus does to prove his authority? Because that's how it's working. He's saying something, then he's doing something to back it up. He's doing impossible things, like you can't ordinarily heal paralyzed people by telling them to be healed. doesn't really work. Um, why these things? And I, this is the thing that really excites me about this chapter, and I was really pleased to be able to share it with you this morning because these things aren't just magic tricks or hard to do miracles they're actually glimpses of the future kingdom i'm telling you that the kingdom of god's coming about i'll prove it by giving you a preview i said at the beginning you know is it just wishful thinking to think one day this world will be fixed. Imagine a world without wars, without evil, without sicknesses, without death. And you go, I can imagine it, but is it just fantasy? Are Christians just persuading themselves of what they would like to believe about the future? No, 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 it's real because Jesus didn't just say that would happen but he proved it. He gave a preview in Capernaum in the first century of the new creation, kind of. You know, it's like, you know, Revelation 21, that famous passage, the city comes down out of heaven from God and there's no more crying or mourning or, or pain anymore. Well, Jesus says, I don't want that just to be promised. I want to show you what that might look like. And I'll show you my ability to bring it about in Capernaum. 
Um, I was quite gullible a couple of times with internet offers, or in fact, it wasn't internet in those days when I was younger. It was the innovations catalogue, and only really old people remember this, but it used to come out in the newspapers, and it was basically a catalogue of things that looked really good, but actually weren't. So the two things I bought from them, I'm actually quite ashamed I'm so gullible now, but I bought an ultrasonic glasses cleaner. I thought that's good because you know, I get all the grime off my glasses ultrasonically. Um, it turned out to be a, <laughs> when it arrived, it was a box that just rattled. <laughs> it had some sort of eccentric motor in it and it just went and then walked itself off the table and fell off. And apparently that was yeah, ultrasonic. And I just thought I'm a fool for having bought it. The other thing I bought was some ultra-reflective um, strips for my bicycle, which turned out to be... You know how silver reflective paper looks grey? This was just grey paper. And I couldn't... It was, it was quite a lot less reflective than white paper. And certainly not... And anyway, I just thought, I'm a fool, don't buy things on the internet, you know, without checking the, the product reviews. And even then, you think, did they fake the product reviews? You know, if only I could have somebody who'd actually seen it in action. And that's what we're getting here in these chapters. Rather than just being gullible and buying into the kingdom of God, here are some people, some eyewitnesses, who actually saw it in action. And the thing that Jesus does to demonstrate it is to preview it. Not levitating foxes, not doing arbitrary magic tricks like writing words in the clouds, but doing actual glimpses of the new creation. Let's just go through it bit by bit. So the first one is evil. Here is a man possessed with an unclean spirit. Now, um, the question, of course, arises, maybe not for you because you're used to it because you've read Mark's Gospel before, but... A non-Christian friend, when they read it, they just go, that's odd. We don't have demons, do we? Isn't it just misdiagnosed schizophrenia? They didn't understand mental health very well in those days, did they? They're so primitive. Um, no, I think it's evil. And we'll see later in Mark that there's a supernatural element to demon possession that cannot be explained by modern psychology. But I think it is fair to say that evil is more overtly on show, shall we say, when Jesus is walking around. That there are evil spirits and there is enormous evil, of course, at work in the world today. But for possessions everywhere you go, I think that's pretty rare. It wasn't rare in Capernaum, of course, because we've already seen that when, when the Son of God comes to earth, Satan rises up to oppose him. And right at the very beginning of the gospel, we saw that. So I, I'm not surprised that we see unusual levels of satanic activity in Jesus' lifetime. Here's a man possessed with an evil spirit and Jesus says, be quiet, come out. And it does. You see, because in God's kingdom, there's no place for evil. If you read Revelation 21, you'll know that's one of the features of it, that Satan has already been thrown into the lake of fire. And no evil, nothing unclean is allowed in the city. Well, here's a, not just a promise for the future, but here's a demonstration in Capernaum of Jesus' ability to do that. Evil, get out now, get out. And it does. And everyone who sees it goes, whoa, his words have authority. It's more than just information, Jesus, you're... You're announcing, you're ordering, and it happens. No place for evil. 
me write some of this up just so we get a sense of it. No evil in Jesus' kingdom. And one of the things we read in Revelation is that um, there's no sickness, no mourning, no crying. And so immediately Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a fever, which of course in the first century was potentially much more serious than it is today. And immediately they told him about her and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. So I'm wrong. I said it wasn't by touch, but it is by touch. Well done. Whoever said that. Sorry, you should have just said, no, Andrew, you're wrong. Yeah, he touched her and she got better. Thank you. No sickness in Jesus' kingdom. And it's as easy as him just lifting someone by the hand. And then verse 32, that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered together at the door. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and casted out many demons. It's like a sort of, that wasn't a one-off. Um, no evil, no sickness, times lots. I mean, I think, I remember Dick Lucas, the 90, now 97-year-old preacher of the church where I was trained um, some of you know of him. He's a great, um, well-known preacher in uh, in London. And he, on this passage, says, when I meet Mark, I'm going to um, question him about why he was so cheeky in understating this. And he just says that Mark just puts it a throwaway line. Oh, yes, he healed various people with various diseases. He said, can you imagine what that would look like? You know, if that was in Newcastle. Down the, down the road from here. And someone's ill, and then they're not ill. And then someone next door's broken their leg, and then their leg isn't broken anymore. And then someone down the road's got leukemia, and then they don't have leukemia. Like, just one evening. I mean, like, the word's going to get round, isn't it? Can you imagine? Like, the, you would not be able to get to Newcastle because every road in Ireland that went anywhere remotely in this direction would be gridlocked because everyone would be coming here. And Mark just as a throwaway phrase, oh yeah, he healed many with various diseases, cast out many demons, a whole town with all of the sick. This is a, a glimpse of some kind of other world in Capernaum. Yeah, it's a glimpse of the future world. No evil, no sickness. Um, rising early in the morning while it was still dark Jesus departed and went to a desolate place the wilderness place literally we saw that last night Jesus is about going to the wilderness to rescue people and there he prayed and Simon and those who were with him searched him and they said everyone's looking for you no wonder I mean, it's not surprising everyone's wanting to you to heal more people and Jesus says no no we've got to move on we've got to go to the other towns that's what I came for I've got to announce the kingdom of God everywhere. So Jesus hasn't come to bring a healing ministry. He's come to bring a preaching ministry. But the healings are there to back up the preaching. Right? So he, Jesus' announcement is the kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And then to prove it, he heals people. But he's not just there to set up a hospital. That's the demonstration. So he, so he moves on. Um, and then we get another episode here, the leper. A leper came to him imploring, kneeling, sorry, a leper came to him imploring him, kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. 
Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See, you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer you for your cleansing what Moses has commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk about it freely to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. He was out in desolate places, wilderness places. Again, people were coming to him from every quarter. They're going out into the wilderness to meet Jesus, just like they'd gone out into the wilderness to meet John the Baptist. Just as Isaiah had said that God would go out to them in the wilderness to bring salvation. Okay, so um, here's, here's leprosy. Now, um, I want to say that this is a bit different to the others. So we've had an exorcism, and we've had lots of healings, the whole village healed. And now we get something different. And I want you to turn to your neighbour and, and see if you can work out what is different about this than just a healing. This is not a healing. Um, what's different about it and what's the clues in the text? So turn to your neighbour and see. Okay, let's be back. Any ideas why it's not a healing? Dermatologists or whatever category of medicine and leprosy comes under might think it was a healing, but Mark doesn't think it is one. What does Mark think it is? Oh, yes, sorry. I'm actually wanting the leper, so one... Yeah, but that's true. That isn't a... That isn't just a healing either. Yeah. Be clean, which is a different word to be well. And you might think, isn't just isn't be clean just a synonym for be well? No, it's not. It's a different word. It's a theologically significant word. Um, what are the connotations of be clean? Anyone know? Right, so lepers are excluded from the community and excluded from worship at the temple, specifically. And they have to be outside the camp. Yeah, so he's, there's an exclusion to it. Um, let's just think about the word. So Mark could have used the word well, but he chooses to use the word clean. Um, we've already kind of seen him use that word. At least we've seen him use the word not clean or unclean. In what respect? What was unclean? Yes, exactly. So this is a, an illness word with a moral connotation. Um, evil spirits are unclean spirits and lepers are unclean people. It's not just you're ill, but somehow there's something sinful or defiled about you. Yeah, so the word itself says that, the clean word, unclean word. There's another clue that, about the same thing as well. What does a leper need to do once healed that Peter's mother-in-law doesn't have to do? Go to the priest. And that's our clue to turn up Leviticus 13 and 14, which I'm sure you know very well. If you don't, 
I'm being cheeky, you may not know it, but that, that's Mark telling us, oh, you might want to read the Old Testament, what it says about this. So chapter 13 is all about diagnosing leprosy and what you should do with the leprosy person, and it's quite sad and um, sobering. So chapter 13, verse 45, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of his head hang loose, shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Here's a man, he's, I mean, his clothes are all torn and his hair is unkempt and he's got this stigma. He is unclean and he, he's got to be on his own. He has to live alone. <laughs> It's a sad thing. And then there's um, chapter 14. There's the laws of what happens to, cl- to cleanse lepers. <clears throat> the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. Just notice what themes you notice about it. He shall be brought to the priest. The priest shall go out of the camp. The priest shall look. Then if the case of the leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who's to be cleansed two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Okay, so you kill a bird, take another bird and and dip it in the blood. And he shall use this bird to sprinkle it seven times on him to be cleansed of the leprous disease. He shall pronounce him clean and let the living bird go into the open field. He who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water that he shall be clean. It's a little bit Day of Atonement-like. Do you remember Day of Atonement? It's got, you've got um, two um, goats and one of them you kill and the other one you let to wander, the scapegoat. It's a bit like that, but with two birds. So it's a sort of very similar kind of um, procedure. After that, he may be coming to the camp, but on the seventh day, he shave off his hair from his beard, his hair, his head, his eyebrows. He'll shave off all his hair. He shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and he shall be clean. On the eighth day, he shall take two male lambs without blemish, one ewe lamb a year old without blemish, a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, one log of oil. And the priest who cleanses him shall set the man who is to be cleansed and these things before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall take one of the male lambs and offer it for a guilt offering along with a log of oil and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. He shall kill the lamb in the place where they kill the sin offering and the burnt offering in the place of the sanctuary. For the guilt offering, like the sin offering, belongs to the priest, it's most holy. The priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering and the priest shall put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one who's to be cleansed and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then the priest shall take some of the log of oil and pour it into the palm of his own left hand and dip his right finger in the oil that's in his left hand and sprinkle some oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. And some of the oil that remains in the hand, the priest shall put on the lobe of the right ear of him who's to be cleansed and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot on top of the blood of the guilt offering. And the rest of the oil that's in the priest's hand, he shall put on the head of him who's to be cleansed. Then the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. Um, for him who's to be cleansed from his uncleanness. Afterwards he shall kill the burnt offering. The priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him 
and he shall be clean. You see, this is all after he's got better, you have to do this. This isn't a medical procedure, this is a atonement procedure to deal with his sin. There's got to be the death of the burnt offering and the guilt offering and the sin offering. There's got to be the blood applied. There's got to be the bird released to take away the uncleanness away from him. The whole thing is about a spiritual decontamination and about a version of the penalty of death. You think, our instinct is to think, poor Blake, he's just ill for goodness sake. No, no, no. Because in the Bible, illness and sin are kind of more connected than we think. Now, we have to be super careful about this because, of course, it's not the case that an ill person is necessarily a particularly sinful person. Um, And we know that because of the book of Job. I mean, that is the point of the whole book of Job. So Job's friends go, you're ill, you must be sinful. And actually, they're wrong because Job's a righteous man. And they just torment Job for the best part of 30 chapters, saying there must be something you've done wrong, Job, otherwise you wouldn't be ill. No. So you've got to be careful. There's not an absolute connection. The person in this room who's got the worst cold is the person who was naughtiest yesterday. It's not like that. We don't believe in karma, like the person in a wheelchair did something bad the last time round in their reincarnation cycle, and that's why they're in a wheelchair. We don't believe in that. But neither do we believe that sin and sickness are unrelated. Now, they go together very, very closely. Because in the world that God made, people didn't get sick and die. Death entered the world because of sin, and disease comes in because of the fall. And the brokenness of disease is a symptom of the brokenness morally. Not in a you've done worse, so you suffer most, sort of exact correspondence kind of way. Although sometimes it corresponds. You know, Naaman becomes leprous because he's disobedient. Miriam becomes leprous because she's disobedient. So it does occasionally work as a direct punishment, but often not, like Job. Here's the thing. You can't just fix the world medically without also fixing the world morally. I think that's the significance of the leper. Jesus shows he can heal fevers, but now he can, he can remove the contamination, the spiritual distancing that goes hand in hand with sin. So in, in Jesus' kingdom, no evil, no sickness, no uncleanness. And then finally, in the most famous one, no sin. Your sins are forgiven, he says to the man. And then... That's also why it proves it, isn't it? It's not just he says, your sins are forgiven, and then he writes in the sky, your sins are forgiven. Or he doesn't just say, your sins are forgiven, and then levitate a fox. He says, your sins are forgiven, and then he he heals the medical problem that is the symptom everywhere in the world of the spiritual problem. The, The two hang out together. In God's kingdom, says Revelation 21, there's no mourning or crying or sickness or death and in Capernaum it was just like that like people saw it being like that it wasn't just wouldn't that be a nice promise like a wistful thought it's a here's a preview in history 
physically eyewitnessed of what will be true and seem to be true everywhere. Um, a friend of mine gave an analogy for this. I think it's quite a good one. If you're ever doing home decoration and you want to you know, paint your room and you go to B&Q or whatever, the Northern Irish equivalent of a hot... Do you have B&Q? Yeah, okay, you go to B&Q. And um, before you start painting, if you've got any sense, you do a little tester pot first because the colour that you think is going to be a good idea, you know, when you actually see it on the wall, you go, oh, maybe that is just a bit too pink or whatever it is. And so you test a little corner of the wall. And then by looking at that corner of the wall, you get an idea of what it will look like when the whole room is that colour. And my friend said, Capernaum is the paint pot preview of the whole world. You know, imagine what it will look like when all the world is in the kingdom colours. No evil. No sickness. No uncleanness and isolation and spiritual distance and no sin. That's pretty good. I mean, that, that, that really sounds like a, a paradise. Well, it's more exciting, actually, isn't it, than a, a floaty cloud overexposed photograph of heaven. It's a real creation. In fact, it's real Capernaum. In fact, it's real the mountains of Morn outside a castle. It's this world, but with all the stuff that messes this world up, removed, banished, evil, get out, says Jesus. Healing, he touches them. The leper, he touches them. Uh, the sinner, he pronounces his forgiveness. And then when you understand that, if you're convinced of that, if you think that this really happened in history and therefore it will happen in the future, when Jesus comes along and says, follow me, you go, yes, please. And follow me and you'll have to leave behind your life. Yeah, obviously, that's fine. I'm up for doing that. Yes, please. Because who wouldn't follow a king who brought in this kind of kingdom and could prove it? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the kingdom of God is not just some theological concept, but is a future promise about a world that's made new because Jesus reigns over it. And we praise you, Lord, that you haven't just left us to sort of have blind faith in this, but Jesus, when he came to earth, previewed this, demonstrated this showed what his kingly authority looks like as he banishes evil and sickness and uncleanness and sin. And we praise you for this promise and we pray that you increase our hope in it and our willingness to do what James and John and what Levi both did, to leave everything to follow him. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of At The Castle. We hope that this teaching has helped you to better understand and apply the Word of God in your life. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your friends and family. We pray that the teachings of At The Castle will continue to help you grow in your knowledge of God's Word and personal discipleship. For more information about At The Castle, please visit our website www.atthecastle.org.uk Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.